The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello all, and welcome to Physical Attraction. On this set of episodes, we're going to go in for a deep dive with a very interesting democratic exercise that's been taking place in the UK this year, the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change. Now, I am aware that many of you are listening from outside the UK, but since the problem that it's supposed to solve is what specifically should we do about climate change, what policies should we implement to tackle it, is a question that applies to virtually every country on Earth at the moment. And also because... The method of trying to solve that problem with a citizens' assembly could be applied to virtually any country on earth. I think it's really worth going in-depth to talk about it. Full disclosure before we begin, part of the reason I'm so keen to talk about this assembly, which has just released its report on Thursday last week, was because I was tangentially involved in it. I actually helped them count some of the votes and catalogue some of the responses from people, although unfortunately I couldn't attend any of the sessions. But, you know, I've been following this quite closely since it was going on. So my cards are on the table here. I personally think it was a very interesting initiative, and I hope that its recommendations are taken seriously And I'm happy to boost its signal in any way that I can, because it's come out in the midst of a very, very hectic news week, especially here in the UK, where we are returning to COVID lockdown and various other uh, interesting news stories are are taking precedence over the results of the Citizens' Assembly, which has been a long time in the making for a lot of people. And I think it's uh, an interesting countervailing point to a lot of political discussion that's going on at the moment in terms of being more detailed. So in this first episode, we're going to talk about what a citizens' assembly is, and we'll talk about some of the pros and cons that various people have uh, considered for this method of of democracy. And then in the second episode, we're going to go in-depth on that report. That report is 556 pages. I've managed to condense it to something substantially shorter than that, and we'll talk about all of the different things that they debated and recommended. But this first episode is all about what a citizens' assembly is. So if you think you already know or aren't interested, then just skip it and move on to the next one, which will be coming out very shortly as well. So first off then, what is a citizens' assembly? Well, the idea of a citizens' assembly is that you select a random sample of people from the nation, which is designed to represent a cross-section of the public. So it's not entirely random, because you do have to ensure that you are selecting from across the demographics that you want to control for, So old and young, from different areas of the country, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different political leanings, etc. So technically speaking, it isn't totally random. And of course, if people refuse to participate and the organisation ends up looking skewed, they usually select more random candidates to represent people across those broader groups and get a better cross-section of society going. Now, once you have that group of people, they're then assembled and they're essentially allowed to debate questions open to the government to deal with some particular issue. There are experts on hand that they can directly ask questions of, 
They have resources available and arguments will be presented on all sides of a given issue. And then they're allowed to go really in depth and thrash out between them what they think about the particular solutions to a problem. At the end, as in this case, they produce a report with opinions and recommendations for follow-up. So these citizens' assemblies have been used for a number of different issues, including recently and notably to discuss whether or not to change abortion law in Ireland. Perhaps in some cases you can end the whole process with a referendum, a straight up-and-down vote on whether the recommendations of the assembly should be enacted, which is then put to the entire public. So if this is the first time you've heard about a citizens' assembly as an idea, I think it's worth thinking a little bit about some of the advantages and disadvantages of this form of deliberative democracy. Let's talk advantages. Firstly, some advocates argue that the random nature of the selection allows these assemblies to be more representative of the country than our actual elected officials. It's interesting, there's a sort of a, a fringe branch of political philosophy which is quite interested in having people selected by lotteries and selected by random as a way of getting true representation um, because it's people who aren't self-selecting into uh, a particular organisation. I mean, let's face it, in order to get elected to do something, you usually need to have certain advantages that other people don't have. In the UK, for example, our parliament is gradually looking more like the country as a whole, but it's still true that around 30% of them went to fee-paying schools compared to just 7% of the nation as a whole. The vast majority of UK MPs went to university compared to just 20% of the country as a whole. You can look at the US, the most recent congressional elections in the US resulted in 101 out of 435 representatives being women, which is a record, although still under 25%, and so on. Now, regardless of whether you think the parliaments that we have should truly reflect the makeup of the nation, or should instead reflect the makeup of people who want to serve in parliament, it's still fair to say that most parliaments, most congresses, don't, in one way or another, reflect the nation that accurately. So I think there's this ongoing debate really about whether you want the most competent people who have the most governing experience to be in charge, or whether it's a more genuine democracy if everyone gets their hands on the levers of power. I would also say this is not necessarily a left-wing versus right-wing debate either. I mean, if you take the statement, there aren't enough ordinary people or people like me in Parliament, I feel like that would resonate across the political spectrum at various times in history. At the same time, I think there's also elitism across the political spectrum, perhaps especially amongst politicians. You have to remember these are obviously all high-flying individuals who have chosen to serve in this career and have been moving in, in quite uh, exclusive circles for quite a long time, usually. So citizens' assemblies, they offer you a way of injecting the opinions and views of ordinary people into the democratic process without having them filtered through representatives who will be selected in a certain way. Advocates will also emphasise that the diversity of the assemblies is important. This is not about just ticking boxes, but genuine cognitive diversity. I mean, take the issue of climate change. If it were left to me and a bunch of academics to sort things out, we might come up with all kinds of policy prescriptions for, say, agriculture, and totally miss out on the perspective of the farmers as to what it would be best and easiest for them to do. Sure, we might guess at what the farmers might think of X, Y or Z, but how would we actually know what they really prioritise? So it's the principle that you know your own business better than anyone else does, and that a lot of these sort of top-down prescriptions that come from governments that aren't informed by what citizens think is obviously a recipe for disaster. So the diversity of thought that you get in these assemblies can arguably lead to better decision-making. And this is just as Dr. Rob Smith, who we spoke to in the previous episode, details in his book. There are several social science studies which come to this conclusion, 
that actually choosing a bunch of people who think differently and getting them to come to a compromise can produce better outcomes than just choosing rule by an elite cadre of the smartest people. And this makes sense. I mean, to be honest, if the world was run only by elite academics with no input from anyone else, it would probably be a flaming ball of wreckage within about a week. Another advantage of citizens' assemblies, and to my mind probably the best one, is the deliberative, focused nature of the process. How often is it, when it comes to election time, that we see an unbelievably complex set of issues that are facing the government, that are different between the parties we're voting for, boiled down to a few catchy slogans? Even when it comes to debates, which are supposed to be the place where these issues get thrashed out, how often is it just about scoring points off the opponent with some withering put-down or flowery rhetoric? How often do we see ridiculous, overblown rhetoric without attention to any detail, facts or practicalities? The debate becomes so trivialised and so polarised so often. This is probably in part because cynical politicians, on all sides, have realised that it's easier to whip up votes by pitting groups of people against each other, appealing to the emotions and prejudices of the electorate, or by attacking your opponent, or even simply by lying. Amidst the drama and constant outrage, where is the room for actually debating policy? Ideas, what you're going to do, and how likely they are to succeed. The sad thing is that it's far more likely to win votes if you're willing to whip up people's emotions like this than you are if you slowly, steadily explain what your policies are and how they will work to solve problems X, Y, and Z. And this is especially true when the topic is really an emotional one for a lot of people, which is the sort of issue that is controversial that is potentially going to be diffused by a citizens' assembly. I mean, think of the ongoing political debate or a recent contentious one in your own country. Regardless of how you feel about how it's going or how the result panned out of that debate, would you characterise it as well-informed on the issues, nuanced or deliberative? I wonder. Instead, ideally, with a citizens' assembly, people can go beyond the slogans and ask, well, okay, how is this going to work? How are we going to accomplish this task? They have the time and space to go in depth and deliberate over things in detail. What's more, the incentive structure in a citizen assembly is different to the type you'd get in, say, a parliamentary democracy. The incentives for politicians often focus around being re-elected, to win within the given democratic system that's in place. And this causes a lot of problems. One of them, of course, is that you have partisanship going completely through the roof. Here in the UK, it's very rare for MPs to vote against their own party except on extremely contentious issues. For example, in the 11 years that Margaret Thatcher was in power, and in the 10 years that Tony Blair was in power, their governments were defeated in parliamentary votes just four times. So while you might think that you can vote for a relatively independent-minded MP, when it comes to parliamentary votes, they will almost always go with their political party. Maybe your MP actually agrees with you on a given issue, but for the sake of party unity, they will often abstain or pull the lever in the opposite direction. When election time comes, generally you have to make a choice between just two major options, or three or four of you in Europe perhaps, and the nature of partisanship means that all of these political opinions are bundled in together. Inevitably, a lot of people pick as what they see as the lesser of two evils, often sacrificing their preferences in some areas, like say foreign policy, for a domestic policy that they prefer. In some cases, of course, people vote for who they think is more electable rather than who they would like to see winning. Then, of course, comes the specific aspect of the mechanism for the election. 
Apologies for leaning on my old examples of the UK and the US again, but these are political systems that are probably familiar to a lot of you. But it's clear that in some elections, in these states which aren't proportional representation, some people's voices do matter more. If you live in a swing state or a marginal constituency, politicians incentivized to win will create policies and make promises that are designed to appeal to you. If you live in a safe area, they can just as often ignore aspects of your specific wants. Because what are you going to do, vote for the other guy? Some groups tend to vote more than others, particularly older generations tend to vote more than younger people, which is a constant irritation for me, and politicians will cater to them more because of that. Specific aspects of the electoral and voting system can also tip the balance away from certain groups and towards others. The Electoral College, each state getting two senators, first past the post here in the UK, you know, these are the mechanisms of the electoral system that can mean that certain groups have more influence than others democratically. First past the post, for example, meant that in the 2010 general election, the Conservatives got 36% of the vote and 47% of the seats, Labour got 29% of the vote and 39% of the seats, and the Lib Dems got 23% of the vote and 9% of the seats. So obviously it's balanced towards those two major parties. And of course, in the US, it's very difficult for any party other than the two major ones to get a look in, as is shown by you know candidacies of Ross Perot and things like that in the past. It's not just the opinions of certain groups of voters that tend to matter more in a democracy because of the electoral system. Depending on how your democracy functions, of course, wealth and power also have influence. Money in politics has been a perennial issue in the US and is considered to be a problem worldwide, and the disproportionate influence of special interests, corporations, labour unions, religious groups, what have you, on politicians of all stripes is a constant issue. 0.25% of the population donates 68% of money to congressional candidates. Now, if that has no influence on the way that they vote, then these individuals are obviously wasting a lot of money. Editors at powerful media outlets try to sway public opinion towards one candidate or another, towards caring about one issue or another, and so on and so forth. And so we see that the defence industry has an influence in foreign policy, the fossil fuel lobby tries to influence climate policy, and so on. If you remove that re-election incentive, as you can in the citizens' assemblies, it flips the script. Their main incentive is not loyalty to a political party, or trying to get re-elected in the particular rules of the game they live in, or trying to appease their donors, but to actually solve the problem at hand through deliberation and discussion, and to come to some kind of compromise that is acceptable to the largest number of people in the citizens' assembly. With a different incentive structure in place, you can come to different, arguably better, decisions. Okay, having sung the praises of citizens' assemblies for a while, now let's discuss some of the disadvantages. The first one that people will cite is a general lack of competence amongst the general public. Because the citizens' assembly has no expertise, they might not really understand the issues that they're dealing with and the trade-offs that have to be made in government. In a world where citizens' assemblies had real power, You could easily have the experts and the politicians being overruled by random individuals in the nation, and you can argue that this would lead to worse decisions. And I think this is really a fundamental issue that some people have with any kind of democracy. You can be a political nut, an expert on every issue, someone with deeply nuanced opinions and beliefs that you've thought through and considered carefully, and they're all internally consistent. You could be someone who's completely immune to having their opinions swayed by the media or whatever. Doesn't really matter how perfect you are as a citizen, your vote still counts as much as someone who likes the candidate's haircut. Should it? Should we mind that people vote uninformed? 
If we say that people have to be, quote, informed to vote, do we run the risk of excluding people from democracy by setting this barrier in place that says people have to be informed, oh, and by the way, by informed, I mean they agree with me? I don't think that this is necessarily a trivial question, even though it might seem obvious. Returning to the Citizens' Assembly, then, there may be issues in selecting the people. For example, if the service in the Assembly is voluntary, the type of person who might agree to participate may already have strong views on the subject, which can influence the debate. The personalities and persuasiveness of individuals in these group discussions can obviously also influence the outcome. Of course, this is also true of elections, where politically apathetic people don't vote, and people go into politics often with quite strong ideologies compared to the standard person, otherwise why would you become a politician? But it may be magnified by the citizens' assembly process. It's quite a long time commitment in some cases. You may be unable or unwilling to give up a few weekends to debate and discuss a particular issue, even if you're compensated for it, and that can be a problem in itself. Another issue, and probably the main issue that people have with this, is how people are presented with the given information. Of course, the Citizens' Assembly is convened by some group of people. In this case, it was convened by the UK Parliament. And the experts they can ask the questions of, the evidence they're presented with, and the experts they can consult are also selected by some process or other. Critics of the Citizens' Assembly will always try to attack this aspect of it as illegitimate and unfair in some way. Because the idea being that if you put 100 ordinary people who don't know anything about a subject in a room with a bunch of biased experts, they'll probably come out agreeing with the experts. I think it's worth being clear here. The reality is that it's very, very, very difficult to have a so-called balanced debate without someone, at some point, making some kind of editorial decision, somewhere along the line. In politics, there is the concept of the Overton window, with apologies if I'm explaining stuff you already know. The Overton window, though, in a way, is the range of ideas that are considered acceptable to talk about in the public discourse, which are considered reasonable, and which politicians can discuss. Typically, you know, you will have people from all sides of the Overton window showing up on, I don't know, political TV discussion shows or radio shows or whatever it is. When you have these uh, contrived debates that you see on the mainstream media, it's the Overton window that you're dealing with there. For example, let's consider a political issue, the problem of ageing populations in the West. Inside the Overton window, you might have someone arguing that we need to raise the retirement age because people are living longer and therefore need to contribute more before drawing on a state pension. On the other side of the Overton window, perhaps people might argue that the government needs to spend more on social care for the elderly due to the ageing population and that, say, businesses should be taxed to make up for that. These concepts are well within the Overton window for discussion. Reasonable people can disagree on them in our society. Solving the problem by mandatorily executing everyone over the age of 70 is not within the Overton window. Of course, we see in societies that Overton windows can shift over time. Indeed, it's constantly shifting, narrowing, widening on given issues. This can be due to changing circumstances, news, historical events, pressure campaigns and groups, or effective advocates who can push the debate one way or another. At one time, the idea that some women should be allowed to vote and that no women should have the vote were both within the Overton window of society's debate. Now, obviously, suggesting that women should not be allowed to vote is well outside the Overton window. No politician would dare to suggest it. The sad truth is that even as you try to be unbiased, you are always making some kind of editorial choice. 
For a start, even in picking the question you want to be unbiased about, you can argue that there's always some level of bias. You know, today on Unbiased News, we will be debating the topic, should we allow billionaires to live? And tune in tomorrow for, taxes, are they theft? Of course, you can try and judge for yourself where the Overton window is on a given issue and pick experts accordingly. But that entails you making a judgement, which could easily be incorrect. Climate change, unfortunately, has been a classic example. A few years ago, the BBC in the UK used to have many debates where you essentially had a climate change denier on one side, usually from one of these Tufton Street think tanks where you know they're effectively being paid by big lobbyists and big fossil fuels indirectly, and you'd have a scientist on the other. And their idea of a fair and balanced debate was asking the question, is climate change a real problem? And so, of course, you had one group of people who were saying it is a real problem and one group of people who were saying it wasn't. It was only fairly recently that they changed their policy to, by and large, exclude climate denial from their own BBC Overton window as a fringe idea that no longer counted as being balanced. In 2020, they considered that debate to be over, in the same way that if you were having a debate on feminism, you wouldn't invite someone on who was saying that women should not have the vote. Now, the debates tend to try and answer the much more interesting and vital question, what should we do to address climate change? Which is really the question that the UK Citizens' Assembly also tried to answer. Once we have this clear, then, there's no way to organise things that will stop someone from crying bias without making any editorial decisions at all. Then you can see that this will always be a line of attack on citizens' assemblies. Who picked the experts? Did they make a good case to each point of view, etc.? We can probably all agree that it's better to have an informed debate and for people to have informed points of view, but critics will always argue about who and how the informing of the voters is done. If the views of the assembly just come to reflect the views of the experts who are presenting the information, who will naturally all have their own views, then does it really circumvent the elitism of politicians or the problems with a technocracy, a rule by the experts, I suppose, that we said it was designed to do? On the other hand, perhaps you might argue that the process of informing the voters in a representative democracy is hardly any better. Needless to say, you can argue about this in electoral politics also. I mean, in both cases, though, the ideal that is aimed for is transparency. So you can watch all of the debates and informational sessions and see how people are responding to them. You can see the list of people who are giving this advice. You can determine whether they are extremists on one side of the issue or another or more moderate people on one side of the issue or another you know you can find out their biases and you can decide for yourself what has happened in the case of the citizens assembly but of course this means that it is open to attack on those grounds of course there are some issues that a citizens assembly wouldn't be appropriate for if you're deciding whether or not to press the nuclear button or say take a country into lockdown measures to deal with covid then you just don't have the time to convene and organize it so that's one point to make Another issue with citizens' assemblies is legitimacy. If they are just making recommendations, people won't mind too much. But if the recommendations have serious power, people will ask who voted for them, why didn't I get asked to participate, who says these people represent me, and so on. You know, it's interesting, whenever I see the results of any political poll, you always see people saying, I've never been asked anything in a poll. And if citizens' assemblies were making decisions, I feel like people would still say the same thing, even though if you're picking 100 people out of 60 million your chances of being picked are pretty close to your chances of winning a lottery. But of course, for example, there was an idea that was presented for a citizens' assembly to solve the unbelievably contentious Brexit debate in the UK as it ploughed into its third year in 2019. That was raised. 
Brexiteers who won the referendum in 2016, they saw it as a plot to undermine the result of that referendum by guiding a bunch of citizens to make a certain decision. Advocates argued that these issues were far too nuanced to work out with a simple yes-no vote count, and that informing people about the issues and allowing them to thrash it out in a controlled environment might produce more useful conclusions than the ill-informed and ill-tempered debate that was gripping the country at that point, where everyone had got into their bunkers and was completely polarised and were screaming at each other and, and so forth. For more on this debate, you can read, for example, The Myth of the Citizens' Assembly in Politico, which criticises the parallels that were drawn between the Irish Citizens' Assembly and a hypothetical Brexit one. In the end, the Brexit one didn't happen. Another issue is the lack of accountability. If the Assembly screws up and makes policy decisions or recommendations that don't work or end up being unpopular, of course they can't be voted out of office. So this is kind of the flip side of the they don't have the electoral incentive <laughs> advantage, is that the disadvantage that they don't have the electoral incentive. You can argue that this might lead the Assembly to be overfocused on solving the problem and not enough to concerns of the electorate because there are no consequences for failure or annoying a group of people. So, for example, politicians might argue that they have to make decisions not just on how to fix climate change, but also whether to prioritise it relative to other issues, which the Citizens' Assembly might not consider since its whole job is to discuss climate change. On the other hand, what a Citizens' Assembly can do is then come back and give the politicians a bit of democratic cover you know, they might be concerned about annoying some fraction of the people who vote for them by adopting a particular policy. But if they can point to the Citizens' Assembly and say, well, these people are a representative group and they thought this was a good idea, then it gives them a little bit more democratic legitimacy to go ahead with that policy. Cass Sunstein, his political philosopher, has argued that although it might seem like it leads to compromise, the process of group deliberation can lead to a dynamic where things simply get more and more extreme in a given direction, and polarisation occurs. In this Citizens' Assembly, the ballots were secret. Of course, being able to vote in secret is considered pretty important in actual elections, so that you're not influenced by what others might think of your vote. Even so, though, you can of course see that the group dynamics are inevitably going to be influential. If you are stuck on a table with someone strident with an unpleasant personality, you might vote against them for those reasons as much as anything else. Similarly, if the group generally starts off with the majority keen on something, they may be able to peer pressure the others into making it look more unanimous. This argument reminds me of a classic event from history during the French Revolution. Please listen to Mike Duncan's amazing Revolutions podcast for many more details. The specific event I'm describing I think is episode 3.12, The Great Fear. Mike Duncan was my main inspiration to start podcasting, so he's responsible for you listening to this right now, and what he's accomplished over the years is nothing short of fantastic. Anyhow, on the night of August the 4th, 1789, the National Assembly in Paris essentially proposed successively more and more radical measures of reform. They hadn't intended it at the start of the night, but gradually they stripped away all of the institutions of absolute monarchy and privilege that governed France at the time, uh, the feudalism was the system that governed France at the time, and the nobles and so on had many rights and privileges. But they proposed more and more of these to be abolished until eventually they had taken away most of them, and then they eventually came out with the announcement that the National Assembly abolishes the feudal system entirely after one feverish night of dismantling the existing governing system. They may not have started the night with such radical intentions, but by the end of it, that is what they had certainly enacted. So in short, citizens' assemblies as a body with supreme authority over making laws is obviously fraught with issues, although I would point out many of those issues are similar to some of those that crop up in a representative democracy. 
But I do personally think that ultimately citizens' assemblies, as a relatively new concept, will certainly lack the legitimacy to make decisions themselves. But as a deliberative body that produces strong recommendations, I think it's a really interesting idea that could correct a great many of the flaws that do exist in representative democracy, particularly when it comes to solving thorny and complicated issues, and particularly when the issues require a lot of deliberation and informed contemplation, and not just slogans and chanting and so on. If nothing else, it's really fascinating for me to see how ordinary people react when they're presented with a lot of the debates that are really familiar to me and other people who are very interested in climate change policy, and to get a snapshot of where public opinion is, what comes up in the debate, and what people value and are interested in. Having introduced the concept of citizens' assemblies then, in the next episode we'll talk about the UK Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change and the actual conclusions and recommendations that it came to. As usual, I'd absolutely love to hear your opinions on what you've heard today. Please head over to physicspodcast.com, the website, where you'll find a contact form under the contact bar. All that goes straight to my email. I try to respond to as many emails as I get. We can have our own assembly on the idea of citizens' assemblies, if you like. I'm happy to do a discussion of your opinions and points of view as well. I want to take this opportunity to do a bit of housekeeping and a plug or two as well, talking about the near-term future of the show and that kind of thing. We're in the middle now on our series on SoftBank's Vision Fund. There's going to be six episodes of that. We have a few more big series that are planned after that, including one on more aspects of climate policy and one on cosmology, and a few standalone episodes and interviews as well. I'm also pretty keen to do another news catch-up and talk about things like GPT-3 and maybe maybe even the stock market and COVID profiteers and so on that I've been interested in lately. But of course, I'm always keen to listen to you guys, hear what you want to know about, what kind of thing you'd like to listen to, whether you're enjoying the show and what types of topic you'd like to see us cover. And you can send in all those requests to the contact form and I will pay attention to them. If you want to, you can go and subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash physicalattraction. The link's also on physicspodcast.com. If you do that, you'll get instant access to 12 upcoming episodes, including the entirety of the SoftBank series, which is already up there, as well as some bonus episodes, which are only available on the Patreon. Now, I don't make a penny from doing this show, but it does take a lot of time and effort to produce, as well as paying for the hosting costs. If you appreciate independent content creators, podcasters, people discussing stories in depth in a way that mainstream news necessarily doesn't, people reading 565-page reports like this Climate Assembly report on your behalf and so on, please do consider supporting the show. For me, it's a lot less about the financial side of it as the principle of paying for content creators that you like and appreciate. Like Dan Carlin used to say, fellow podcaster, if you met me and you'd listen to 100-odd episodes for free, you might buy me a cup of coffee, which is really all we're asking for. And you can do that, of course, by things like the PayPal and the Patreon. If you do subscribe to the Patreon, you can set the donation amount at whatever you like, and you'll only be donating when an exclusive bonus episode is released, which I always announce in advance. So you can actually kind of just scan the system, sign up, download everything that's there, and then immediately sign off again. Um, I'd, I'd ask people not to do that, but you can if you want. Many, many, many thanks, of course, to the extremely kind dozen or so of you who have subscribed already, and particularly to long-time listener Bruce in Australia, who, when I did the accounting, I realised was far and away our number one supporter. Bruce, I apologise for not being on top of Australian affairs and on behalf of the nation for that one Monty Python sketch about the Bruces. I'd also say I'm open to offers for sponsorship if people want to email and ask about that via the contact form again. Of course, if you're not in a financial position to do any of that, I do totally get it, particularly given the state of the world at the moment, continuing to (laughs) uh, get into the the interesting, the fun zone of um, world affairs. It's, it's, in seriousness, it's been a really bloody difficult year for all of us, I think. But of course, that means that I'm very understanding about what people do in response to a show they listen to. 
But of course, there are other ways that you can support us as well. Every time I get a thoughtful email from a listener, it really makes my day. I like to respond to them if I can. And of course, you can tell as many other people to listen who might be interested. Review the show, blah, 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 blah. Enough plugs. You know, all of the things you can do. In the meantime, though, of course, the most important thing you can always do is take care of yourselves out there. Thank you.